Does God exist? Answer, why test him? Because without him, you can't even ask that question. First things first, um, the Christian apologist, when presented with an unbeliever that suppresses belief in God, should first and foremost diagnose and isolate the root cause of unbelief. In order to determine the root cause of unbelief, we can consult the unbeliever or we can consult God's revelation. The unbeliever will most likely appeal to a lack of evidence as his or her reason for unbelief, whereas the Bible, on the other hand, says that disbelief in the existence of the one true God is a moral problem stemming from man's rebellion and not an intellectual problem stemming from not having enough facts. As Christians, we should believe God's word as God's word is our highest authority. The manner in which we answer the question on God's existence must therefore be governed by what the Bible teaches on the topic. The Bible explicitly says that the only reason for unbelief is due to moral inability. The Christian apologist will therefore be unaligned if or she does not address the moral question. But for now, just allow me to go over the moral problem that unbelievers face. So if you take a look at Psalm 14 verse 1, it says that the king says in his heart there is no God. What is a fool in this context? According to the Reformation Study Bible, uh, a fool may be a highly intelligent, you know, by the world standards, but the fool is oblivious to the true nature of reality. So in this context, the Bible calling the person that's saying there is no God a fool is making a moral judgment. Um, and it continues. The fool denies the existence of God as a matter This is practical atheism. God is how to be and their foolish hearts were darkened. Romans 1, in a certain sense, expands on what the psalmist taught in Psalm 14. The reason someone can be called a fool for saying there is no God is because they already know God. Romans 1 also expands on this idea by stating that the reason they know God is because God has made it clear to them such that they are without excuse. See verse 20. 
for God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. We must then ask the question, what does it mean to say that someone is without excuse for denying God? Put simply, no one on the day of judgment will be able to stand before his throne and claim that they were ignorant of the fact of his existence. The Reformation Study Bible shed some more light on its commentary on verse 18. Um, it writes that it is not that the truth is sought but cannot be found, but rather that confronted with the truth, which is clearly perceived, fallen humanity seeks to hinder and obstruct its influence and therefore and is therefore without excuse. The excuse that is in view is an appeal to ignorance. This leads to the following intriguing question. So if everyone knows about God and cannot appeal to ignorance, why doesn't everyone profess belief in God? Now, we cannot point to an intellectual reason or to a lack of facts and evidence. The only reason that we can point to is a moral reason. And Romans 22 to, uh, Romans 1, 22 to 23, um, sorry, Romans 1, verse 22 to verse 23, uh, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So by default, humans hate God. We don't want anything to do with them and rather freely choose to actively rebel against him, exchanging the glory of the Creator for the created. Commenting on this, John Calvin wrote the following, Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. So the Bible also teaches us that to even approach the question of knowledge, you know, a statement that God exists or does not exist is, is in fact a knowledge claim, to even approach the question of knowledge without first referencing God's revelation makes it impossible to attain knowledge to begin with. It says in Proverbs 1, 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, Colossians 2, 3 says that in Christ um, is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, we can spend hours arguing about the evidence for the existence of God, going into deep philosophical discussions, but this completely misses what the Bible teaches about knowledge and the existence of God, as we have seen in the preceding texts. The Bible teaches that all men already know God and are called fools for denying it. The Bible also says that there is no knowledge without the ontological existence of God, and there is no knowledge without revelation from God. So to ask the question on whether God exists is nonsensical given the Christian worldview and futile and absurd given the non-Christian worldview. It's therefore not an intellectual problem, but a moral problem. So how do we know that God exists? Uh, the classical response to the following question would be, you know, the same way you do. We all know God exists, and we know this because God reveals it to us by virtue of who we are. If all creation is revelation of God, and we are included in that creation, our very existence is revelation from God. Knowledge of God's existence is implanted in us from the time God molded us in our mother's wombs. John Calvin dubbed this the sensus divinitatis. This is consistent with what we just learned from Romans 1. We can read from John Calvin in his Institutes that he says, 
there exists in the human mind and indeed by natural instinct some sense of deity we hold to uh, some sense of deity we hold to beyond dispute since God himself to prevent any man from pretending ignorance has endued all men with some idea of his Godhead. This is not a doctrine which is first learned at school, but one as to which every man is from the womb his own master, one which nature herself allows no individual to forget. So the only difference between Christians and non-Christians is that the Christian profess the truth, whereas the non-Christian suppress the truth. Christians profess the truth about God because of what God has done for them and in them. So the question is, how do we go from suppression to profession? And the answer lies in Ezekiel, 25, uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 25 to 26. Uh, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart of flesh. So the need for God's granting of repentance before we can acknowledge the truth about him is clearly taught by the Apostle Paul in the second letter to Timothy as well. Uh, 2 Timothy 2 verse 25 to 26. Um, God may perhaps, uh, let's say, so, so Paul asked Timothy to correct opponents with gentleness so that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So since the fall in Genesis 3, we have all been captured by the devil to do his will. We were enslaved to sin, unable to do anything to please God, sometimes even going so far as to deny his very existence. The only way we can acknowledge the truth of the true God's existence is if God first grants us repentance. The Christian, therefore, has no reason to boast in his or her intellect and ability to profess their belief in the one true God, as it is all due to the grace of God that we are able to do that in the first place. This point is, is worth repeating. The Christian is not inherently smarter, better, or more informed than the general unbeliever. All that he or she can fall back on is the grace that God has in his eternal decree determined to grant on him or her. This, of course, does not mean that we believe in the, in the existence of God contrary to reason, but rather we believe in order to reason. So a, a bit more on this later. So this, of course... Um, if it were not for God the, Father's, the God the Father's sovereign grace and decree to redeem a people for himself, the work of the Son on the cross to pay for the sins of God's people, and the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men to make them draw near to God, there would be no one professing belief in the one true God. Uh, Romans 3 verse 24-25 There is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to, re to be received by faith. Uh, Romans 5, 8-11 God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, we were, if while we were sinners or enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, 
much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life more than that we also rejoice in god through our lord jesus christ through whom we have now received reconciliation so for the unbeliever refusing to profess belief in god what do you think will happen when you die if you're listening to this and you're an unbeliever what do you think will happen when you die you might think that it will be the end of it but it's not um hebrews 9 27 teaches us that man is destined to die once and after that comes judgment each and every one of us will have to stand before the throne of god and give an accounting of every deed every word every thought so i don't really care who you are if this does not make you shake in your pants i don't know what will we won't have a leg to stand on that day all that will be left for god to do is to provide us with perfect justice for our sins against him whether it was lies anger murder sexual immorality or whatever so if you have not accepted the atoning work of jesus christ in your place you will have to carry the burden of god's justice on your own that is hell so unbelievers usually think that christians use the phrase that uh, you know i believe in god or you need to believe in god in the sense that that we use you know we believe the sky is blue or something like that but that's not the sense, that that's not the way that we are using the word believe so when we say that you need to believe in god or you need to believe in jesus what we mean is you ought to put your trust in him because if you don't put your trust in the work of jesus christ on the cross on your behalf you will have to pay for your own sins as god's perfect righteousness demands it we trust and believe in god's promises to deliver us from evil so realize first and foremost that unbelievers like us stand guilty under god's law and need a savior uh, romans 3 verse 20 for by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin it is therefore of utmost importance that the apologist preaches the gospel of jesus christ as only the gospel has the ability to change the heart so that men can profess belief in god the accurate diagnosis is that belief in god is a moral problem and must first and foremost be treated as such think about it this way let's say a patient comes to see a doctor complaining that he has a minor headache all he asks for is that the doctor give him some pain medication on closer inspection it becomes clear that he actually has a life threatening tumor after revealing this fact to him he maintains that all he needs is some pain medication should the doctor agree and try to 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 to, to treat the issue with the patient um um priority the issue with the patient's uh, requested cure so sh- should we listen to the patient asking for medication or should the doctor actually proceed and treat the actual issue which is the tumor so in the same way when the bible says that unbelievers have a moral issue and not an intellectual issue why would we treat it first and foremost as an intellectual issue trying to provide the unbeliever with more facts to try and convince him With this in mind, I now turn to defend my opening statement from a philosophical perspective, trying to show that to even question God's existence presupposes his ontological existence as well as his revelation to be intelligible in the first place. So, we are now getting to the bulk of the article. So, so we already determined the the moral problem that's at stake, so we need to we need to uh, identify the moral issue as the root cause of unbelief. and and now i turn to the philosophical defense of the opening question so 
Um, how do I know God exists? Um, because without him, you can't prove anything. Or, you know, the, the, the same way you know he exists, because through his revelation. Um, so let, let, let's defend that. Um, so let's say the atheist approaches you and he says, how do you know God exists? And you tell him the same way you do. Or why question him? Because without him, he can't even ask that question. So the first reply that the atheist might give is, but I don't really believe in God and I am asking whether God exists. Therefore, the statement is flawed because I really don't believe in God. Therefore, I can ask the question without his existence. And this is obviously a kind of a straw man because of two things. The Bible says that the unbeliever does believe in God, but suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. And the fact that the question is being asked betrays the fact that they implicitly believe in the existence of God. So it's not that they actually don't believe in God and then ask the question. It's that they are living in God's world, created in his image, and hence they have the ability to ask the question. But they can't even account for their ability to ask the question. So that's the main point that's going to pop up here. So reply to the atheist might say, but I really don't believe that God exists. And how does my question implicitly imply a belief in God? Um, so, again, the Bible says that the unbeliever does actually know God exists. He may suppress that knowledge, but he does know it. So, the question, if you, if you ask the question, does God exist? It assumes at least three things, which is the existence of objective truth, um, access to reality, and laws of logic. We can maybe add things like reliability of senses and reasoning, uniformity of nature, other elements called the preconditions of intelligibility. But let's limit the discussion to the listed three. So I'll expand on each below. Why does the question presuppose objective truth? So, so truth is usually defined as that which corresponds to reality. So if, if I say the sky is blue, it will only be true if and only if the sky is actually blue. So in the same way, God exists can only be true if and only if God actually exists. If the questioner does not assume objective truth, any answer to the question is effectively meaningless and has no bearing on whether God actually exists. The second one, access to reality. Um, this kind of feeds into what we just discussed above. But if we don't have access to reality, there is no way of answering the question of what is objectively true. And laws of logic... You know, the laws of thought are traditionally the three fundamental laws of logic, uh, law of contradiction, excluded middle, and principle of identity. And, and these laws are immaterial, unchanging, universal, and transcendent. Uh, so they transcend location, time, and culture. They are always true in all possible contexts. And now, so these are the implicit assumptions. Now, the, the charge of the Christian is, you need to account for that. So now that we have established the implicit assumptions, how do we account from that apart from God? So if you're asking the question, does God exist? The implicit assumption as well is that you, you can intelligibly ask that question kind of without requiring the actual existence of God to begin with. So you're approaching the existence of God as an open question, a hypothetical. And now we need to account for those three things apart from the existence of of God um, yeah and I guess you know the, the main charge is it's, it's impossible let's say you're the, the person is an atheist 
How do, they, how, do, how do they account for immaterial, unchanging, universal and transcendent laws of logic? You know, they simply can't. It's impossible in a materialistic, atheistic universe. So, the third most common reply is kind of the thing, but those things are my axioms, or my assumptions, or my presuppositions. So I don't need to account for them. But that's not really answering anything because obviously they are your presuppositions. Everybody has those presuppositions. Um, we're not asking whether you have them. We're asking you for, to, 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 to account for them. And so then on that they might reply, but, but I don't need to justify these three factors because they are, they are my assumptions or my properly basic beliefs. Why do we need to justify my assumptions? And, and, and obviously the answer is because if you don't, it makes them arbitrary. So we can simply assume the opposite of their assumptions and just negate everything they're saying and it'll be just as valid. It, it effectively destroys any ability of us to, to, to argue intelligibly with each other. Uh, so reply five um, might be something, but, but I don't need to kind of account for them because, for example, if you want to argue against the laws of logic, you must assume them. So it's justified in using the laws of logic. And, and that, again, is partly true. But the issue is not whether the laws of logic is valid. They are valid. That's part of the presuppositions everyone holds. The answer is, how do you account for them? How do you account for the existence of immaterial, unchanging, universal and transcendent laws of logic? You need to account for that. That's the main issue. And um, possibly, uh, let me just see if I, can, if I can find something here. Um, the question is therefore not whether they exist, you know, whether we can reason or whether the laws of logic are really there, um, because they are. The question is, um, how do we account for their existence as a means to gain knowledge? So we want to, to give an ontological grounding for their existence and an epistemological justification for their usefulness and continued reliability. For example, you, you cannot have an ontological position that states that all that exists is matter and at the same time use immaterial laws of logic. That's contradictory. If, you, if your ontological position excludes the existence of such laws, then your epistemology, to be consistent, must preclude you from appealing to immaterial laws. That's just how it is. But, but on the Christian worldview, we can give an accounting of these laws. You know, the laws of logic flow from the biblical worldview. The very nature of God, unchanging, universal, immaterial, is the source of the laws of logic. So, um, but, but now, you know, the guy is asking the question, does God exist? So, so now suddenly you, you can't use God as the grounding for these things or the justification because you're approaching him as an open question. So the answer is, asking the question is kind of futile. It's an obvious yes, because without him, you can't even ask the question. That's the main point. So we, 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 we can't answer the question on God's existence without making an ultimate reference to him. So this was the point of the opening sentence. The denial of the existence of God already presupposes his existence in the same way that an affirmation presupposes his existence. So let's say someone says, does God exist? No. You know, that again, it assumes laws of logic. It assumes objective truth. It assumes all those things. So even the, the denial of God's existence implies his existence. So that's why Cornelius Van Til usually says, you know, anti-theism presupposes theism. 
that's what he means. Um, so let's just quickly close up over here. <clears throat> now, now some may say that this this is a circular argument, and and I'll I'll leave you with the final words of of Cornelius Van Sol. He says, "Well, my my meanderings have, to be sure, been circular, but they have made everything turn on God. Everything turns on God. Without Him, you have no foundation." And then he says, so now I leave you with him and with his mercy.